Mini-episode 1360 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode 1360. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here, and I have on with my fellow FDH Lounge dignitaries, my good friend, FDH Lounge Hoops analyst Ben Chu, last on with us recapping the NBA Finals for 2021, and this time recapping the 2021 NBA Draft, which was a very, very interesting spectacle. A couple of potential megastars at the top of the draft, one that slid at least slightly further than we expected him to. So a couple of very obvious winners at the top of the draft, and then it gets more muddled from there. Here to help us wade through the model, as I say. My good friend, Ben Chu. Ben, good to have you back on, my friend. I'm good, Rick. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great, buddy. Uh, and uh, I will say, you know, I, I always we, we always acknowledge personal uh, biases on the show here, personal things that uh, make us happier or sadder. And uh, as a Cavs fan, I couldn't be happier. Uh, Evan Mobley, the seven-foot unicorn, drops to my team. So that's a very loaded question, Ben Chu, because you know exactly how I'm doing when it comes to the 2021 NBA draft, and I am doing fantastic. Right, and I figure you would be at this period of timelines, because this is always secretly a Cleveland Cavaliers podcast <laughs> at the end of the day anyway. So It always comes back to it, and, uh, you know, plug and play, baby. I uh, don't have to break up the backcourt. Uh, it, they did make a move to augment the backcourt yesterday, acquiring Ricky Rubio. I will tell you this, a dirty trick played by Twitter yesterday that gave me some heart palpitations. Late afternoon, early evening, I see the name Garland trending on Twitter. Oh crap! Oh crap! What's this about? Turns out U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland had made some news. So they should have stipulated that, Ben. It should have been Merrick Garland for a trending topic, not just Garland. Because here I thought Kobe Altman gave away the store and we didn't have Darius Garland anymore. Honestly, I'm not really too surprised that Rick Morris didn't do the uh, fine print research after looking at that. Because I don't think there's ever been a timeline where Darius Garland has been trending. <laughs> hey yo, hey there we go. <laughs> well... That was kind of funny, because anybody that knows me can just imagine the stricken look on my face when I saw that it was trending. But, uh, you know, we start at a very obvious part here, okay? We got some winners at the top of the draft. The Cavs, number three, taking Evan Mobley. Houston, number two, with Jalen Green. You could argue that they could have used Evan Mobley more. As a Cavs fan, thank God they didn't think so. But Jalen Green, another megastar in the making, potentially. Cade Cunningham going number one. I mean, even if this man is only 0.9 of a Luka Doncic, then that's that's fine, basically, right? I mean, if you get uh, nine-tenths of Luka with, with a player at the top of the draft, you're going to be just fine. So three obvious winners right there that I don't think anybody could take issue with. No, I don't think so. I think, to be honest, since the beginning of this draft outside of Houston's 
foray into the Jalen Green sweepstakes, essentially. It felt like they were going to be in that top four for most of the scenarios. I think overall with Detroit, I mean, they tried to look at other picks, and I mean, Mobley was definitely on their radar at some point. But to be honest, Kate Cunningham, just size and ability around the basket just to get easy baskets and see the floor really well. Detroit, despite picking Killian Hayes in last year's draft, they still, they really need a true playmaker, and that's what Cunningham can't provide. And very sneakily, very similar to the Cavaliers at this timeline, the Pistons have a very good young core at this current moment, if you include Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bey, who, who I believe was added to one of the all-rookie teams. So they have a really good young core to start. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of the role Kate Cunningham's going to play? Is Killian Hayes going to play a little bit more off guard? We still haven't really seen any specific amount of skill set from Kate Cunningham in terms of if he is being forced into a double team, will he be able to pass out of it? Will he be able to make certain great plays along the lines? Because we did see in the NCAA tournament when Cade was pressured, he did not come up big. Right, and I feel like that's one going to be one of the things he's going to have to work on, especially on the next level. If we go to Houston, I think it's pretty obvious that they're either the big winner or just the depth of what they were able to get. And Jalen Green, Alibi, I'm still not sold as a next level Kobe Bryant esque type player. He clearly has the highest potential of any shooting guard in this draft at this moment. And I think with just how that Houston's current makeup looks like. It feels like to me that they did the best overall job taking Alspers Sangoon and in later on in the first round, also enjoying the uh, Spanish product Guzman Garuba also playing. So they have a really good sort of, if you look at sort of what they have, like a very good young core and what they're able to do moving forward. It's going to be interesting. And the one guy that I, I don't think a lot of people talked about much, and he's kind of, he fell on the board that they were able to take was just, was Joe, uh, I believe his name is Justin Christopher, the kid from Arizona yes. State, yes. who was very good in terms of just getting baskets for, for the Sun Devils and just making big plays at the end of the day. So they got a lot together. And for Cleveland, I think Mobley has the opportunity to be the best number one, to be the best player in this draft. I don't think we really need to overanalyze anything at this point. The only question we really kind of have is is that if it wasn't for the fact that the big man perceptionally is moving out of the NBA, if this was any other year, would Mobley have been one and Cunningham would have been two, and then it would have been a green subs scenario for it. But it's going to be really interesting to see how Cleveland's going to use him. And the one major knock on Mobley in college was, was that was regarding his motor, and there were some games that you could tell he wasn't offensively I guess the best would be say, I guess you say is, uh, how would I say this? Rick? I would, I would say like forceful at the end of the day. Right. Like there were games where he got his points, but it didn't feel like he was putting his stamp on the game. And you would think of a guy that big and that lanky and with a good perimeter three point shot, he would have a much better chance of doing much, you know, he would have a bigger impact than some of the games that he played in. Yes, very possibly. Uh, and, and I think again, they'll look to get, more out of him, and I think they will at the next level. There's already some talk about nicknames here with him and Jared Allen in the front court. The Terminal Towers, I like that one. Uh, him lining up next to uh, Allen, there is the potential of the nickname Frobley. I've seen that already. So uh, there's a couple of right, nice And little... I think the major thing for them, too, for Cleveland, I will say in a narrative of Bucky 
fortuitousness in a trip that was very heavy guard. The one thing that they were sort of lacking, though, know, Allen, I think, is a fantastic player. They didn't really have a perimeter sort. They didn't really have, like, a big perimeter threat, really. Yes. And Mobley, hopefully, will be able to provide that moving forward. And the real question, the good thing for them, too, is, Rick, is that it's very possible Jared Allen could not re-sign, or it's possible that he only signs a short-term deal. So the worst-case scenario is you're not causing a problem with the crowded backcourt already of Garland, uh, Colin Sexton, Ricky Rubio, and Isaac Okoro as well. So at the end of the day, I think for Cleveland, it's the best case scenario. You didn't have to. You you got a possible transcendent player. Yeah. Without having to, without having to do any heavy lifting. Anything. Exactly. That's that's what I wanted to see. I want to circle back around to Houston, but before I do, uh, as a Cavs fan, I will say this is already no worse than the number four draft day in Cavs history. 2003, obviously, 2011, 1986, and now 2021. And, uh, hey, if Mobley is here for more than one title, we might be calling this the number one draft day in Cavs history at some point. Uh, As regards Houston, uh, again, Jalen Green, perhaps in some ways a bit duplicative of KPJ, which I have previously bemoaned the Cavs giving him away. But uh, Houston was not dissuaded from taking Jalen Green. The only counterpoint I'm going to give you on this, because I do think, again, as far as guys who have, and you you know me, an upside, you know how I am about that, but these other three guys to be developed along with Jalen Green, I look at that and I just think to myself, in NBA history and in recent NBA history, when's the last time you've been able to bring along a bunch of guys like that together? I mean, it seems like, you know, out of those other three, maybe one of them will pan out, two if you're super lucky, but I wonder if they might not have been better balancing off getting somebody who projected as a rotation player in there because a lot of times it can be a zero-sum game as far as trying to bring along too many green guys at the same time. Right, but the one argument I would make in the favor of Houston for this case is they don't, they kind of are in a situation right now where they have that time mm-hmm. and that ability to make decisions. I understand like you don't want to take that many picks and maybe find a rotational player Right over time, Rick. But the argument I've always said is you can find rotational players in the NBA anywhere in the States. True. Yeah. So this isn't, I, I think this isn't, I think that's like older logic, but I get what you're saying because if you're bringing along a lot of these young, greener guys, it's yeah. going to be problematic. But again, I think also, too, this is that they have a good core of guys already on this team, but it's going to be just really interesting what sort of direction they choose to go in at the end of the day. Yeah. Just in terms of what style of offense they're going to run and with uh, the second year of of, uh, of, uh, of James Silas's head coaching scenario, we didn't really get to see much because of that of the initial start to Wood Wall and Cousins, and then eventually turning into stuff like KPJ and you know John Wall at the end. It just we never really got a good. I never felt like I got a good vibe of what James Silas's coaching career is going to look like moving forward. So this might be the real first year that we get to see what Houston could be at the end. That's true. Uh, it will be a good uh, test of that system. And by the way, and as we talk about all of the green guys that Houston got, lowercase g, green, the one who's the least green is uppercase uh, g, Jalen Green, out of the four guys there. You know, he's, he, he still needs to be developed, but certainly less so than the other guys in the class here. 
where I really, really wonder what the hell's going on here is uh, and some talk about uh, the Toronto Raptors, uh, whether or not they're still going to have their team president in place going forward here. That almost feels like a move of one foot out the door, taking Scotty Barnes at four, not even bothering to trade down, letting Jalen Suggs fall to five for Orlando. And I see a situation here, and I hate to say this because I, I, don't, I don't have anything against either franchise. I see losers on both ends of this thing. Uh, Toronto in passing on Jalen Suggs, who would have been a nice plug-and-play replacement for Kyle Lowry, a great one really potentially here. And then, uh, you know, Scotty Barnes uh, going in that spot, a guy who, again, like a lot of these guys, like Isaac Okoro in a similar position last year, hey, hopefully he'll learn to shoot at the NBA level. Well, that's what Toronto ended up uh, taking it for there, passing on Jalen Suggs. And under normal circumstances, you'd be like, oh, Orlando's a big winner. But you know what? Orlando's had a bunch of guys the last couple of years that they've completely failed to de uh, develop, whether it be Jonathan Isaac or Bamba or any of these guys here. I mean, Cole Anthony, uh, ironically, also at, at the point guard, so they're going to have a crowded spot there. That's the one guy who hasn't been a I disappointment. Right now, no, that's not a crowded spot if they choose to play him as a two guard. Well, well, that's true. He's got, he's got the height to play that. And that's, I also wonder, too, you mentioned Killian Hayes with Cade Cunningham is I think we're seeing more of a trend in the NBA to wanting to have strong secondary playmakers on the court at the same time. So that is something where, but again, do I trust Houston, or I, I'm sorry, do I trust Orlando to be able to make that happen? Because like I said, their player development, really, with high picks in recent years, comparably speaking to other franchises, has just been outright ass. So I don't even proclaim them necessarily the winner of this with Jalen Suggs falling into their lap as far as developing him. I see them as guilty until proven innocent. And for Toronto, I just see a great opportunity that has come and gone here. Scotty Barnes could develop, but I think it's an unforgivable gamble for them to make in the four spot. Sure. And I mean, the real question, too, is, is that if Orlando didn't want to give up any draft capital to get subs, if they, there was any sort of information out there that they sort of made that decision just generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, overall, I will, I'll just take the Raptors first. I think Scotty Barnes is a very good player. He fits a lot of tools. And if the overall net plan for Toronto is, is it's going to turn into a Fred Van Vliet, Gary Trent Jr. backcourt, if that's what they preferred, I feel like Barnes is not the worst pick because he can play the Draymond Green sort of role. There arguably might be the best defender in the draft and might be one of the best five tool guys in the draft. But the argument I would say too is, is that five tool guys in college usually do not translate to the pros in most narratives. Draymond Green was one of the rare sort of scenarios where that actually panned out. But we also tend to forget that at Michigan State, Draymond was a pretty notable offensive force right. during that timeline. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like Toronto, it, it's not the worst pick for them. I'm going to just play devil's advocate and say this is good for both teams. Okay. That it feels like that overall is like if you're if they're wanting to play, you know, sort of flex style basketball, they have a really good opportunity now with OG Ananobi, uh, Pascal Siakam, and now Scotty Barnes to have that sort of flexy, interchangeable lineup that can do a little bit of everything on the floor and make big plays at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The major question for me with them, though, if I'm being honest, is, is that Suggs, I felt, would be, have been a better fit just in terms of a guy, of a go-to scorer at the end of the game because right. I truly do not believe that as much as I like Fred Van Vliet, I don't really trust him to be that guy at the end of the game to close out games consistently. Right. So it would have been nice to see them go with that. And just to flip over to Orlando, 
I think Suggs makes a lot of sense. The one thing I do agree with you is they have a very crowded sort of, you know, backcourt at this current moment. You have Cole Anthony, you gave Markel Fultz a bunch of money. And Suggs, at the same point, is going to try and mix and match in that narrative. But the one thing I will note with Orlando is that, I mean, you have to give them higher odds than they normal because I'll be honest, I would think if we were going to, if you would have told me yesterday that they ended up with Suggs and Franz Wagner instead of Scotty Barnes and Franz Wagner, we would all say that they made a much better draft day decision at the end of the day. Sure. And I think the issue with Orlando too is they've dealt with injuries, they've dealt with multiple head coaches who have been problematic. I love Steve Clifford as a just a general head coach, but he's not good at developing young talent. We've kind of seen that already throughout his coaching career. Yeah. So I think Orlando, I think Orlando kind of got a deal of subs turns into the guy I think he can be, sort of like a better, a more healthier version of Brandon Roy. He's okay. going to be a really good player for them. And if guys like Isaac Bamba, Wendell Carter Jr. can come back. At full force, they're going to be an interesting team moving forward. But I would make the arguments like it feels more like both teams got a little bit more muddled at the end of the day instead of possibly like finding their sort of general process moving forward. I agree with that. There's no question uh, about that. Uh, and then really things got a little bit muddled from there. Uh, Josh Giddy, the point guard from Australia, going to Oklahoma City at six, and and it was really kind of a free for all from that point on because. You get outside of the top four or top five if you put Kaminga in that level. He drops to seven uh, to Golden State. That ended up being uh, something that Golden State had to be ecstatic for. I know as a Warrior hater, I wasn't happy because if ever there's a team that's going to teach that guy to shoot, it would be them. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you really started seeing a lot of, and I would say reaches from this point, even though, a lot of these guys are much rawer once you get out of the top four or top five. But still, though, uh, Zaire Williams going 10, that's higher than a lot of touts. Had him going, myself included, way higher. Joshua Primo at 12 to San Antonio. Everybody's inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt because they've always done well, especially on international players, but still. So it, it think things really, really, really started to get weird. As weird as it was to see Jalen Suggs drop to five, from that point on, it was just kind of a free-for-all, and you could throw a lot of these notions of where guys were going to go out the window. Right, and I think, too, it's like this is one of the years that I think a lot of the mocks got a lot of, a lot of things wrong. Like, I think, to you, to go back to OKC, because I think they're probably the best analysis point, was Josh Giddy was a mid-level pick for most of the offseason. Yeah. And then we, I started hearing rumors from Memphis and from... Uh, Oh, excuse me, not Memphis. When Memphis eventually traded into that spot for the Jonas Valanciunas trade, there was talk that Golden State might take him. There's talks Orlando might try to steal him if they end up going with Scotty Barnes. So Giddy, I think, is probably the most unknown prospect in this draft just because he's 6'8". He has all the ability of making a bunch of great passes on the floor. He can penetrate to the basket, make a lot of big plays defensively. I'm not sure if he's there yet. But it's going to be very interesting for OKC because now if they keep everybody at this point, you essentially have a starting three. You have three playmakers on the floor if you include Giddy, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and Poku. Right. So they have three guys who can handle the ball and make plays at the end. Of the day. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they say. I would argue, Rick, and I think the biggest surprise was Joshua Primo's, excuse me, Primo from, from Alabama or by the Spurs, I, I don't think I saw a mock draft 
that had Primo and he hired in 22nd. And some have, uh, some people had him going in early second round. I had him 30. But I understand yeah. what, uh, at the end of the day, what uh, San Antonio sees in him. He's the youngest player in this draft. He's only 18 years old. He had a good career at, he had a good season at Alabama, excuse me. And has that lanky, rangy side to him that he can hit threes and he also has a very good wingspan, I believe, up to six foot ten. But my concern for them is that San Antonio's backcourt, again, we've discussed this already, is also filled with guys. Yeah, it is. So I'm not saying they have to go with Sangoon or Garuba or even Kai Jones. It just kind of felt like that after 10, it just felt like anyone who was anyone was just like, we. if they had to be able to pick through 10 through 22, you kind of felt like you could just go ham wild at that point. And it was really interesting, too, if we're going to talk about a team that kind of got lucky. You got to give credit to the Charlotte Hornets for getting James Bognight from UConn to get to pair him with Lamelo Ball and Kai Jones. So I mean, it, I don't think the Hornets are necessarily winners, but that team's going to look a lot different next season. Oh, they really are. And uh, as as far as uh, Primo, the Canuck going to San Antonio in my mock draft. I had them taking Giddy. I knew they'd go international. I just didn't know who it was going to be. The one thing I'll say is that lineup that you mentioned in OKC, uh, that is one that is going to be, if, they, if they're playing those three guys together to any decent amount, an incredible, incredible amount of length. And uh, if, if they can keep their lateral defense uh, solid, keep guys from getting around them, they're going to be swatting shots left and right with that lineup then. Right. And I think if we've discussed this in the past, too, I think the biggest issue for OKC moving forward is, is that what are they going to do with Shea Gilgis-Alexander? What is the overall plan for him? Because I heard he was in trade rumors leading up to the draft. There's discussions they were trying to trade up to get Evan Mobley from Cleveland, and he was part of the package right. initially. So it's going to just be really interesting to see. As we know, OKC literally has a laundry list of draft picks at this point. Like I think they have more... Honestly, this only got more first round draft picks than I've had ex girlfriends. So I mean, <laughs> at this point, I mean, it, they're going to have. It's going to be very interesting to see over the next three or four drafts where I believe they've accumulated fourteen first round picks, including their own. Right. To where it's just going to be very interesting. And I mean, one of the big concerns that I have for them, just generally as a team, is that if you have that much draft capital. You have to turn something from that draft capital, right? And we spoke, and we've seen it more often in the NFL than in the NBA because in the NBA, outside of one or two teams, the process '76ers and the Celtics of the late '90s, a lot of these guys, a lot of these teams don't have multiple first-round picks, and it's going to be interesting to see because for to at least give Houston credit, it feels like OKC, similar to the Cavaliers, they've been in an extended rebuild. And Houston, all of a sudden, I'm not saying they're a playoff team, but their direction seems, and I at least can see where they're going at this point. I hear what you're saying about that, and I agree with you. And I will say also, too, in the NBA, you only have a certain number of of, uh, spots there where the picks really, really matter. I mean, in this draft, there was three or four spots uh, because of uh, the players that were there. I would say four Uh, possibly five that were really worth having as far as potential franchise players, but you don't have that many opportunities. Generally, you have less uh, in the same amount or less than you had here. So, yeah, what they're doing is uh, really going to be interesting to continue to monitor as they continue to hoard and accrue. And, again, that was always my criticism of uh, Danny Ainge, was he was really good at hoarding 
uh, all this capital, but when it turned around, it came to turn around and actually use it, uh, not so much. He he generally uh, didn't uh, like to burn his uh, thing here, and you have to you have to burn your capital at a certain point here. But as as far as it goes with these players here, you start moving into uh, you know into the back end of the lottery and then beyond. And there were some uh, some uh, real values here. It seemed like as far as uh, some of the players that dropped here, uh, Charlotte. Uh, yet again, a uh, mention of them getting Kai Jones at 19 in a trade with the Knicks. Jalen Johnson, 20 to Atlanta. I mean, he had a crummy year, but this is a guy who profiled pretty well as a prospect uh, and uh, was, was thought of as a lottery-type value. you got a team that was in the Final Four this year that got a potential lottery-caliber player. they got to be happy with that. Keon Johnson, with his athleticism at the very least, dropping to the Clippers at 21. So... You had a couple of these players ultimately uh, tumbling to teams where they are going to be of use. You could say the same thing for a fellow uh, Tennessee player, uh, Jaden Springer, much like Keon Johnson. Springer goes 28 to Philadelphia to a team that uh, can use some help in the backcourt there. Cameron Thomas, uh, 27 to Brooklyn, uh, which uh, the, the ability to uh, fit him into a backcourt here when Kyrie and or Harden needs a breather, <clears throat> is injured. So uh, you, you have some players here, uh, Nashon Highland uh, to uh, Denver with the 26th pick. You had some teams that were really able to pick up pretty good values because of some of the uh, more interesting, shall we say, earlier picks. Right, and I completely agree with you, Rick. And one low-key winner, which I don't think we got to talk about, I think a lot of people missed overall, and you already mentioned it, was Brooklyn. Considering their cap situation with their big three, they really need to have a good, solid draft. And to get a guy like Cameron Thomas from LSU who can just fill it up and get baskets, it's gonna. Be, it was very important for them. They also picked up uh, uh, Deron Sharp from UNC to be sort of their backup big, yes. the top offensive rebounder, I believe, in the ACC, the ACC this season. Yes. So that's going to be big help to them too. Another guy who. You know, the, what we saw at the tail end of this, going into the later round and into the second round, a lot of great point guards falling. Uh, the first one that I was really shocked by was Sharif Cooper of Auburn, who ended up beat, who ended up going to Atlanta. A guy that was, I think, pretty much projected to be a mid to, uh, late 28, you know, sort of early 20s, late first round pick goes to maybe his perfect situation, which would be coming off the bench for the Atlanta Hawks and being Trey Young's backup. Yes. So that's going to be great for him. Uh, you know, Chicago was able to make make a – it's very weird. The Bulls only had one pick, and that pick ended up be, being Io DeSamblu. Excuse me. I can't I, – I can tell it's a Friday when we're recording when I can out pronounce last name. <laughs> but he was a – he was a steal, too, one of the better players for the Illini during their tournament run. And he goes into, I would say, another perfect situation for a guard who didn't really, you know, get, you know, a team that doesn't really have a default point guard. And he can definitely fill, up, fill it up with the best of them at the end. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the Bulls start to use him moving forward. Yep. And one guy I, I felt like that just um, completely kind of fell down and, Again, I guess we've always used this rule in life, Rick, sometimes when the best situation should be when things just absolutely fall in your lap at the end of the day. And I, we have to talk about the Utah Jazz picking up Butler uh-huh. from Baylor, essentially a guard who dealt with some injury issues over the last couple of 
during the during the draft process, but he ended up, ended up probably being in the best situation too. Is getting to play, be the backup guard behind Mike Conley, get to partner with Donovan Mitchell, and I think there are definitely some other sort of guys in the second round that are going to be really interesting to watch moving forward. One of them would be a Greg Brown from the University of Texas, who had a sort of a disappointing end of his season, but went to Portland, who desperately needs some sort of athleticism at the small forward, power forward position. And another guy that I saw kind of fall a little bit, and but was a little bit picked higher, I think, than most people, was Joan Weisenkamp from Iowa, who played alongside the Wooden Award winner, Luca Garza. He's going to be a very sneaky guy who can hit threes consistently. And I really think the premium in this draft was being able to get guys who could shoot the three-pointer because if we're being honest, shooting was not a high mark in this class of players. Uh, definitely. And uh, I was going to mention Greg Brown if you didn't because you've been high on him all along. You'll get to actually see him up close there in Portland, see him develop. And, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, very interesting. I think that's a great value pick for them. At 43, that's a guy that you've been high on. As long as we're both going to sit here and gravy train for a moment, I will do this. And if we're talking about point guards, uh, my favorite one on a personal level in this draft, going to, I think, an exquisite spot, my boy Jason Preston from The Ohio University going to the L.A. Clippers uh, via Orlando at 33. Uh, And uh, just a great situation there because similar to the situation with Brooklyn. Uh, they need guys who can come in and play because of their cap situation. And don't know if they're going to get Mr. October back there in the backcourt or not, but whether they do or whether they don't, uh, there's going to be plenty of room for Jay Preston in that rotation uh, and on a winning team to boot. He couldn't have done better, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so either, especially coming from being a guy who essentially wasn't even highly regarded and you know it was very interesting to see the path of his career and his games and his and that ohio's brief run in the tournament yeah it's very weird and very odd rick that that many good point guards fell but i guess we can say that this was one of the better point guard class we've seen a lot it would not shock me of those four names we've discussed if one of them ends up being an all-star caliber guy sure well not only that i mean somebody that i had going 23 Tumbles to the second round, 36 miles. McBride going to Oklahoma City, another one of the guys they were able to gobble up with their multiple picks here. So OKC, much like uh, Houston, again, they continue to gobble up as many of these young guys as possible. And I guess when I was talking about some of the possible pitfalls before for Houston, I was in a way thinking of Oklahoma City because some of them have made some strides. But at the end of the day, it's a zero-sum game on developing young players here. So that's kind of the the issue that you run into here is how many of them are going to get enough reps to be consistent enough as far as uh, improving. So Miles McBride might be the opposite of Jason Preston as far as going to an optimal situation. Right, and I think the one thing, too, is is that, and I think, because we say this all the time, Rick Morris, is that, second-round picks or throwaway picks. But if you can find the right guy at the end of the day to fit into your rotation and fit into place, let, let's re, let, let me know to a second. I've read now two or three different mathematical studies on the variable of how important an NBA draft pick is. And if you get past the lottery, you're really looking at guys who are like end-of-the-bench rotational guys. And if you can hit a home run and possibly get an all-star or a solid starter out of it, 
it should be seen as a win in terms of just overall draft capital. And the second round, we've seen a lot of guys that are going to be very interesting moving forward. I, I want to also, I feel like I should also bring up one. I should, we should, it would be wrong of me. We talked about the Brooklyn Nets, but we got to bring up the New York Knicks. The name right. is escaping me at the moment, Rick, and you'll probably know this too. At 34, Rokas uh, Jokobitis. Well, we'll talk, I can talk about Jokobitis, though, too. Well, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm looking for... Yeah, yeah, while you look, I can talk about Joe Gavitis. Okay. Um, definitely a good overseas player, a guy who's 6'1", six, 6'2", six, six, has that ability to get to the cup. Sort of like a poor man's Goran Dragic. So for the Knicks, who are still trying to figure out their point guard thing, a good guy who can either come over now or a good drafted stash player for them. Right. Okay. And I will say just overall, the Knicks, I felt like they could have done more with their picks and selections, but I understand what they're trying to do is they want to try and make a big splash and free agency and to make some moves. Yes, absolutely. Uh, by the way, uh, Quentin Grimes at 25 going to uh, yeah, New Quentin York Grimes, yeah. via the Clippers from the uni- from uh, University of Houston. Yeah, he the one the one thing I do really like about him is that the Knicks were really looking for perimeter shooting. Mm-hmm. And you have to give him credit because under Kelvin Sampson, he improved his three-point percentage. And he looks like one of those guys who can be kind of like a microwave scorer off the bench and make big plays. So he's going to fit into New York very well, especially if they decide not to pay Reggie Bullock. So he can probably take over that role if they need him to at any period of time. So the Knicks didn't make any real big splashes, but at the end of the day, they got some really good guys for some, you know, I'm not being, I'm being honest, Rick, with anything for the Knicks of not having anything bad happen to them is usually a good sign. Well, absolutely, yeah, and they're, they're not used to that uh, being the case. Uh, one of my last notes would be uh, in looking at this. I mean, you mentioned Sharif Cooper dropping to 48 to uh, Atlanta, and that's a situation where that was, uh, again, a, a surprising turn of events because he was pegged to go somewhere mid to later first round. There are also guys that go in the second round where maybe at the beginning of the year, they might have profiled as being much higher. By the time draft day rolls around, they're not regarded at the same level for whatever reason. There's two guys that I see that fit that bill here where I think that uh, if teams do a good developmental job with them, they might really get uh, somebody who can be a strong contributor in the rotation, if not more than that. One would be at number 53, Charles Bassey, the Nigerian center from Western Kentucky, this is a guy who at a point earlier in the year had potentially profiled as a late lottery pick somewhere in there. Ditto Scotty Lewis, the shooting guard from Florida, dropping to 56 to Charlotte. Right. Both of them fantastic players, great athletes. And we see this constantly, especially with Bassey, Rick, because there are some guys that, you know, they didn't really see, they didn't, they didn't live up to their expectations of what people would like in the lottery. But there are always guys like that. Another guy who because we didn't really touch on the Sacramento Kings yet. Davion Mitchell was their overall selection, who their first-round pick. And it, it, was a, it was an interesting situation. There's discussions that he was essentially just the best player off the board that they took. It's going to be interesting to see with De'Aaron Fox and with uh, Tyrese Halliburton and how he's going to work out with them. But their second-round pick, Metu from Utah State, had a, was a guy who was – I think a lot of people are on the fence about I actually really like him. He could be their starting center if they decide not to retain Hassan Whiteside or Rashawn Holmes due to money-related purposes. So there, there are always going to be guys in the second round, right? And the one thing we 
as you know hoops analysts and hoop heads that we talk about a lot is that especially now with the G League being much more formed, you should be GMs in most cases should be making value picks that they can always send to develop in the G League and be able to get time and experience. So I feel like at the end of the day, a second round pick, if you trade it away, is no big deal. But you, if you have a second round pick, especially in the mid tier of that thing from the beginning of the second round to about pick, I would say 48, 49. You need to make sure that selection is going to be someone who can, you can either develop into a good player or a guy who is under seeded or under underperformed during a year who could in the future become that much better. That's a very good point. And uh, speaking of the G League here, uh, worth noting in the first year of the G League Ignite, uh, the a, a team of all-star prospects, Jalen Green going second, Jonathan Kaminga going seventh. There was one other player who was drafted, and that was at the top of the second round, Isaiah Todd, power forward, uh, going to uh, Washington. So that is a very interesting pick uh, right there for them. So the, the G League Ignite is uh, something that is uh, going to be a thing, at least for the next year or two. Once the high school players start coming out directly, I don't think that's going to be a thing anymore because why settle for the pay that you can get there when you can get NBA pay? But uh, there's the, the initial three guys getting drafted from that uh, draft class, this is something to watch for the history books because we haven't seen anything quite like this previously. Right. And I think what will ultimately happen, Rick, is that G League Ignite will still exist moving forward. Right. But you're going to see a lot more international prospects or guys who might not be able to jump right to the league to take Agreed. advantage of that. Because Agreed. I always think for the league, it's a good thing to have a team like that. Yes. Just of overall talent and different things. And we, it, we'd also be remiss to note that this is also the Mont, Montverde Academy draft of all things. Four guys going in the first round. Yeah, I mean, that went to that prep school. That is, uh, that's incredible as well. And I agree with you on the G League Ignite. I think it'll still be around. It just, you're, you're not going to get the uber, uber prospects going there. They're going to go right to the NBA. But guys who are going to gamble on potentially becoming a high lottery pick the next year, if you're a guy that projects as maybe a second round pick coming out of high school, maybe you go there for a year. Uh, you try and get all polished up, see if you can become a lottery player. I agree with you. They're still going to get some players uh, going there. And, of course, in college, you're still going to get whatever's left over, just like they did uh, in the years before the uh, one-year uh, mandate was put in place by the NBA. So looking around at this again, a very, very interesting uh, draft. And, uh, again, like I said, the, the tumultuous nature of the back end of the lottery really kind of shaking it up, making it unpredictable, and leading to potentially some good values later on including potentially Moses Moody, 14 to Golden State, as much as I hate to admit that, and Corey Kispert with his shooting, 15 to Washington. Uh, that uh, about does it for my observations. Uh, anything we didn't cover with you yet? Uh, I mean, overall, not not much. But one thing I do, feel, I do feel like we do need to cover is this draft was the first draft since 1966 that had less than six seniors selected. So a lot of freshmen, sophomore, and underclassmen essentially as part of this draft. And it's going to be very interesting, too. And also, if you want another fun statistic, Luca Garza of Iowa, the lowest drafted Wooden Award winner as well. So wow. it's going to be very interesting to see because next year's class is going to be just as intriguing as this year's class. So uh, I cannot wait to see what the draft looks like next season. 
it is going to be a fabulous draft crop, especially at the top. That's what it's projected to be at this point, uh, which, uh, again, is, is how we would, I think, describe this year's class. So uh, we shall see. And, again, there's going to be teams uh, still in tank mode for next year, Oklahoma City, Houston, uh, somehow or another Minnesota. It doesn't matter how many all-stars they get. They can still never rise out of the muck and the mire. So the teams that didn't get any of the top guys from this year will be angling for those picks next year for, for the likes of Detroit, Houston, and Cleveland at the very least. Uh, time to start getting serious, especially if you're Detroit and you're Cleveland. It's time to start taking steps towards contention uh, because you have the piece that you were looking for. So always a pleasure, uh, Ben Chu. Thank you so much for uh, making time with, for us today to break down the 2021 NBA draft. Oh, I appreciate it, Rick. Hopefully we'll get to see if the Lakers trading the farm for Russell Westbrook is going to work or not. Well, it's not going to do anything for their floor spacing, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but uh, And uh, LeBron may be a little bit impatient looking to get passes from time to time. So I'm not one of these people who's assuming that the uh, star stacking is going to lead to anything inevitable as far as greatness on their part. But uh, we shall see how that shakes out. So thank you uh, very much, the great Ben Chu. FDH Lounge NBA Hoops Analyst. And thank you everybody for tuning in to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1360.